Moments ago, President Biden told CNN he will hold Vladimir Putin responsible for recent attacks in Ukraine. But how? The lead starts right now. A global response as Russia bombards Ukraine with mass missile attacks for a second straight day. What the president just said about the aggression in an exclusive interview with Jake Tapper. Also this hour, another CNN exclusive, one-on-one with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. His take on Republicans' chances of winning a majority in the midterms, plus the one question he refused to answer about Donald Trump. And the worst is yet to come, the new recession warning, as top economists also predict exactly when the economic downturn will hit. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with world leaders pledging to stop Russian President Vladimir Putin's reign of terror in Ukraine. An emergency debate today at the United Nations and the G7 heads of government, including President Joe Biden, on an emergency call with Ukraine's president today, vowing to hold Putin to account for the renewed aerial bombardment of Ukraine. President Zelensky pleaded with those leaders for beefed-up air defense systems to protect his country as Russia bombs hit housing, hospitals, schools, energy infrastructure, even a playground. Missile attacks yesterday and today killed at least 19 people and injured more than 100. My first guest on the lead with Jake Tapper today is Jake Tapper, who sat down for an exclusive interview with President Biden about the situation on the ground in Ukraine, among many other topics. Jake, what did he have to say about this aerial bombardment? Well, he had a lot of harsh uh, words uh, about Vladimir Putin and what Putin is doing in Ukraine. Uh, But to be frank, uh, one of the most important questions I had was based on something that French President Emmanuel Macron told me several weeks ago, which is he doesn't think that Putin is is acting in a rational way, that he thinks uh, that because of two years of isolation during COVID, uh, something happened. And so that's one of the places that that I chose to, to ask President Biden what he thinks. Do you think Putin is a rational actor? I think he is a rational actor who's miscalculated significantly. I think he thought, uh, you you may recall, I pointed out that they were going to invade, that all those 100,000 or more troops there, and no one believed that he was going to invade Ukraine. You listen to what he says. If you listen to the speech he made after when that decision was being made, he talked about uh, the whole idea of he was needed to be the leader of Russia that united all the Russian speakers. I mean, it just I, I just think it's irrational. So if, if he's not rational and... No, he, I didn't say he's not rational. You said the speech is what's think I think the speech, is, okay. his objectives were not... I think he thought, Jake, I think he thought he's going to be welcome with open arms. That this was this has been the, the home of Mother Russia in Kiev and and they were, he was going to be welcomed and I, I think he just totally miscalculated. So it's interesting there, John. You hear President Biden saying that Putin's speech was irrational, but pushing back when I suggested that he thought that Putin was irrational. No, that's not what I said. He said so. He's not. I, I guess he's he's um, refusing to insult Putin, uh, but at the same time saying that this entire campaign is not rational. Uh, so I thought, I thought that was interesting. It was notable. He specifically didn't seem to want to question Putin's 
sensibility or mental capacity, I suppose. Jake, this was a pretty wide-ranging interview, a whole range of subjects, right? Well, we, we talked a lot about Russia uh, and Ukraine, given the fact that um, President Biden talked about Armageddon and how we are now closer uh, to um, an, a world actor um, using a nuclear weapon at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we did talk a lot about that. We also talked about uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and obviously the refusal of the Saudis to, to do anything to help the West uh, when it comes to uh, fuel production, petroleum and, and gas and oil. Uh, and then we also had some questions about other things going on, including the economy, uh, the Justice Department's uh, investigation into his son, Hunter Biden, uh, and also questions about uh, whether or not he's going to run for re-election and whether or not he's up to the job. Very interesting. Looking forward to hearing those answers. Jake, great to have you on. Thanks, The John. lead with Jake Tapper today. <laughs> We're going to be looking forward to your full interview with President Biden tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern right here on CNN Tonight with Jake Tapper. CNN also on the ground today in Ukraine where these Russian attacks on civilian targets are, are far from new. But as our Nick Payton Walsh reports, they signal a new phase in Vladimir Putin's reaction to recent losses on the battlefield. The second day of smoke over the capital in skies that had been quieter for months. A power plant in Venezia, one of many hit today, here by an Iranian drone attack, officials said, as Russia's cruise missiles tried to turn the power off before winter. A smaller wave than Monday, with Ukraine saying 33 hit their targets and 33 were shot down. Russia's defence spokesman Blunt about what it wanted to hit, energy systems and military control. These 48 hours of onslaught, new in ferocity but not in purpose. Russia has been hitting civilian targets in cities like this one, Zaporizhia, daily for the past week, where one person died this day. Terror that led the White House to agree to send advanced air defence systems Monday. But talking to the G7 leaders... Ukraine's president wanted more. Declare Russia a state sponsor of terror too, he said. The leader of Russia, feeling the approach of his end, is trying to force the democratic world to surrender with a terrorist rush, to retreat, to lose. This can only be the desire of an insane person. More than 100 missile strikes in less than two days against civilians, against civilian infrastructure, sham referenda, a criminal attempt at annexation. Yet the days of indiscriminate and clumsy blasts don't change Russia's main problems, that its army is using force conscription and lacks basic supplies. Its military leadership bought a reprieve from rare internal dissent by Monday's violence, perhaps. But still, Putin's rhetoric less fiery when he met the UN nuclear watchdog head today to discuss the front line embattled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant even as he blamed everyone else for what he's been doing. Of course, we see that today there are elements of excessively dangerous politicization of everything connected with nuclear activity. Still, he will meet his Turkish counterpart in Kazakhstan as his leading diplomat insisted they were not against talks with the West if offered. This is a lie, I can tell you right away. We did not receive any serious proposals to enter into contact. Again, a sign Russia, for all its violence and bombast, is not in a position of strength. 
Now, negotiations do seem unlikely, frankly, given the West and Ukraine don't trust Russia at the diplomatic table. We heard from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky that 20 of the 28 cruise missiles fired today uh, were in fact intercepted. And that while the, nearly all of the uh, suicide drones, the kamikaze attack drones fired at Ukraine were Iranian made, a large number of them were taken out too. So greater success in their air defense systems. But still, according to Ukraine's energy minister, speaking to CNN earlier, nearly a third of their energy infrastructure has been hit over the past days. That's going to have an impact, something they're working fast to repair, according to their president, but certainly having an impact with winter ahead, John. In, what about the impact of being under a second straight day of bombardment like this? What's the mood on the ground with people knowing that perhaps a missile or a drone could hit at any minute? I don't want to understate how awful yesterday was, certainly in a place like Kiev, where there were civilians and a rush hour on the way to work being hit. But it's important to point out that in other cities, particularly near the front in southern and eastern Ukraine, bombardment has been pretty common over the past months. Air raid sirens, pretty regular. And so it touched cities which hadn't been necessarily hit so hard over the past months. But everyone across Ukraine this morning at about 9am, their smartphones would have come alive with a message saying, be careful. I think there are many Ukrainians deeply angry, a lot of resolve that we're seeing. One small scene that will give you a picture, really. We were at a place in Dnipro yesterday where a huge crater was caused by a missile. By this morning, that had been filled in and covered over and the road was functioning normally again, as though nothing had happened. Of course, devastation around, but still, that gives you a sign, really, about how so many Ukrainians just willing to pick up, clean up and get on the next day undeterred by this extraordinary violence, John. Extraordinary indeed. Nick Peyton Walsh, live from Kraviri, incidentally, President Zelensky's hometown. Thank you very much, Nick. Next, how strong words from top Democrats likely push President Biden to reevaluate the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. We're also standing by to hear from the Justice Department. Prosecutors have less than an hour to reply to the Supreme Court in Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago documents case. Plus, A sign of the times, the new recommendations to get young children screened for anxiety. That's ahead. We're back with our world lead, quote, it's Putin in Saudi Arabia against the United States. That's stark assessment from Dick Durbin, the number two Senate Democrat, who joins a wave of critics demanding the White House take action over Saudi Arabia's decision to team up with Russia and slash oil production. Now, National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, John Kirby, says it is time to rethink the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I want to bring in CNN Chief White House Correspondent Caitlin Collins. And Caitlin, you asked Kirby to clarify this statement he first made this morning. What did he tell you? Yeah, because it's a big question, John, of what does that actually look like and will it live up to what these Democratic lawmakers say should be the result of OPEC plus making this decision to slash oil production. And right now we are told that there is no kind of special team inside the administration conducting a formal review of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. There's no deadline so far. They haven't really said exactly what they believe the options for this review could look like. But John Kirby did say that this review is being conducted, that President Biden wants to take another look at what the U.S.-Saudi relationship relationship is going to be and whether or not it's serving the United States national security interest. Now, those are, of course, still big questions about whether or not 
Uh, that's actually going to result in any formal change to the U.S.-Saudi relationship. But it is notable that John Kirby is even going that far and saying that they do believe that there should be uh, a deeper look into how this relationship is between the United States and Saudi Arabia because it's a big shift for President Biden himself, who took a bet over the summer by going to Saudi personally, meeting with these leaders, fist bumping the crown prince, of course, over the objections of human rights groups. And so that in and of itself is notable. But whether or not this review pans out, what it looks like, that is still a pretty big question, John. Yeah, and the White House is being pushed vocally, publicly by Democrats. This is more of what Senator Durbin told me this morning. I think it's time for us to imagine a foreign policy where we do not count on Saudi Arabia. That is as clear a declaration by the Saudis that they are on the other side of history as we can ask for. So... How are administration officials engaging with lawmakers on Capitol Hill, if at all? Well, it doesn't appear that President Biden is directly having these conversations yet because I asked if he had spoken with Senator Dick Durbin, with Senator Bob Menendez, who is also calling for basically halting almost all arms sales to Saudi Arabia in the meantime. But the White House says that President Biden does plan to have those conversations. They noted that lawmakers are out of town right now. And Kylie Atwood, our colleague, is reporting that quietly there are discussions going on between Biden administration officials and lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Of course, still a big question about whether or not they are going to follow through with those options for retaliation, potentially, like what these lawmakers, like what Durbin and Menendez and others are calling for, because they've talked about, you know, freezing these arms sales to Saudi Arabia, withdrawing uh, what's already there, rethinking the antitrust laws that are in place that help with OPEC plus right now. Those are all big questions. And so we'll see what, are, what the White House does about this. But they say that they are taking a look, a hard look into what the relationship is going to be with Saudi Arabia going forward, whether or not that actually results in concrete changes or if they're just saying that because of their domestic critics remains to be seen, John. Yeah, keep us posted. Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thank you very much. In our politics lead, the Justice Department has just responded to former President Trump's emergency request to the Supreme Court. Trump wants the special master and his own legal team to get access to the more than 100 classified documents the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago. Want to bring in CNN's Jessica Snyder. Jessica, the DOJ must now say how it wants the Supreme Court to decide the issue. What are prosecutors pushing for? Well, John, the DOJ has just filed its response to the Supreme Court on Trump's uh, push and petition, emergency petition, for the Supreme Court to step in here. It's a 34-page ruling. Our team is going through it right now. But what really stands out to me at first blush reading this uh, response from the Justice Department is how sweeping their criticism of, of the district court in this case. Remember, it was Judge Eileen Cannon down in Florida who initially stepped in, appointed a special master, restricted the documents that DOJ could use. A lot of that was ultimately overturned at the 11th Circuit. But DOJ goes right for it, criticizing the district court for those actions that they'd taken, that the the judge had taken several weeks ago. Then they talked about the fact that um, the jurisdiction that the 11th Circuit had was okay. Because remember, Trump's team is going to the Supreme Court on a very narrow, limited basis here. They're basically saying that the 11th Circuit did not have the power to restrict those 100 classified documents from the special master and from Trump's own lawyers. That was the very limited jurisdiction, the, the, or the, the 
through the very narrow way they went to the Supreme Court, saying that the 11th Circuit never had jurisdiction over that. The, the Justice Department here saying, yes, the 11th Circuit did have the power to act here. And then furthermore, John, and lastly, they really focused on the fact that there has been no harm to Donald Trump. The Supreme Court should not step in because Trump himself has not been harmed. They say that just by restricting these 100 classified documents from his view, his lawyer's view, the special master, there really is no harm here. So the question is, what happens next now that Trump has appealed this to the Supreme Court and the Justice Department has responded? Well, now we wait and see. This initially went to Justice Clarence Thomas. He oversees the 11th Circuit. He'll likely refer it to the full court. Now that this response is in from DOJ, we could see action from, from the Supreme Court at any minute now. It could be a matter of days before they decide this. Again, this is very limited relief that Trump's team is asking for here. What we've seen previously from this court, it's probably unlikely that they're going to step in at this uh, stage of the game. John? Jessica Snyder, you are a fast reader. <laughs> this filing was like four and a half minutes ago, and you just digested Skimming almost through. all of it. We'll let you get back to the reading. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Also this hour, CNN's exclusive interview with Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. What he thinks about Republican chances of winning in November and one of the most talked about candidates, Herschel Walker, possibly coming to Capitol Hill. By right, topping our politics lead, Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker is getting some much needed help on the stump today in Georgia. Senators Rick Scott of Florida and Tom Cotton of Arkansas joined the beleaguered candidate at a campaign stop outside Atlanta. This as Walker tries to fend off allegations that he paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion. And now, in a CNN exclusive interview, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is throwing his own weight behind Walker as well. CNN's Manu Raju live now on Capitol Hill with his exclusive reporting. And Manu, McConnell hasn't really always embraced Walker. What's he now saying about Walker's problems and, and the party's chances in November? Well, I asked him specifically about that abortion allegation, what Walker denies that he paid for a girlfriend to have an abortion 13 years ago. And he said that he plans to, quote, stick with Walker despite these questions. He believes that the election will ultimately turn on other issues, such as Raphael Warnock, the Democrats' ties to Joe Biden. But McConnell's support is significant because his outside group, the Senate Leadership Fund and its affiliated group, has plans to spend roughly $60 million on the airwaves from now through Election Day. And he says that he's been speaking with Walker, quote, fairly often. Now, I asked him also about the midterm environment, how he feels about getting back in the majority, and he indicated it is still too early to tell whether or not this would resemble GOP debacles of 2010 and 2012 when flawed Republican candidates cost them their chance at the majority. He said it was clearly a challenge in 2010 and 2012 with Sharon Angle, Christine O'Donnell, Todd Akin, and Richard Murdoch, referring to those candidates at the time. He said, so it was a clearly a problem in 2010 and 2012, whether whether it's a challenge or whether it's fatal or a big problem this year, we'll find out. So he contends this will be a cliffhanger election, a different tone than some other Republicans who are much more optimistic at this moment, John. So you also spoke to McConnell about his own future, maybe prospects as Senate Republican leader and how he would approach President Biden if Republicans do win the majority. 
Yeah, he put an end to speculation that this might be his last term as a senator. He is up, his term ends in 2027. He said that he, he put an end to speculation that he might cut that term short. He said that he will serve out his term. But after that, it's still an open question. He said he will run for leader again in the new Congress, majority or minority. He said, quote, I have the votes. But when I asked him, will you continue to serve as leader beyond the next Congress in which he would get the, the record from being the longest serving Senate party leader in history would he continue to serve after the next two years? He did not want to go that far. He said, I'm not going to go there. I'm confident I'll be reelected to another two-year term. I think there are plenty of people who could step in and do this job when I asked him about potential successors in the long run. But he also talked about what he would do in a Senate Republican majority. I asked him whether or not he would move on a potential Biden Supreme Court nominee if a vacancy arose. He was noncommittal. And he also offered a broader warning about other potential nominees, judicial or executive branch nominees that may come forward. He said many of the appointments the president has made during the first two years have been quite extreme. He said he's not just talking about judges. He's talking about boards and commissions. And he said, I think our view would be on appointments that we need to talk about it more and maybe have some recommendations to make ourselves before going down that path. Sumanu, earlier this month, former President Donald Trump ridiculed McConnell, saying he had a death wish, and he also went after McConnell's wife, the former Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, with a personal and, and racist attack. What did McConnell have to say about that? Well, he said he had no comment. I asked him specifically first about that death wish comment, that McConnell had a death wish for supporting unspecified bills. He said, I don't want to comment about that. But then I pressed him about that racist attack against his wife. I said, is it acceptable to have that racist attack against Elaine Chao, who, of course, is of Taiwanese descent? And he said, he said, I don't have anything to say about that. The only time I've responded to the president, I think, since he left office is when he gave me my favorite nickname, Old Crow, which I considered a compliment. And after all, it was Henry Clay's favorite bourbon. And I said, are you going to leave it at that? And he said, I will. John. That's how he responded when you asked him about an attack on, on his wife. Why don't you think he would answer that question? He clearly views this as a distraction, a fight with him and the, and the former president, knowing full well that if he were to engage, it could become a distraction at a crucial moment for his party when he wants to focus on Biden and not Trump and not his fight with Trump. So despite his personal feelings, not wanting to weigh in. And as you know, John, Mitch McConnell chooses his words carefully and he chooses when not to speak as well. John. Manu Raju with exclusive reporting from Capitol Hill. Manu, thank you very much. Thank you. Mitch McConnell clearly has his eye set on trying to reclaim the Senate majority this November. CNN's Harry Enten is here to break down how that could happen. Harry, Republicans need to flip just one seat in the 50-50 Senate to take control. How is that looking right now? Not great. I, I'm just surprised as anybody else. Look, uh, I broke it down that Democrats need to win essentially four of these six key races. And where are they right now? They are ahead in four of the six key races that they need to win, if we pull the polling uh, average up here, what you'll essentially see is they're up in New Hampshire, they're up in Arizona, they're up in Pennsylvania, and Georgia, the 50th seat, they're up by four points. So even though they're losing in Nevada and Wisconsin, they got the 50 seats right now. They're the ones who have the votes. Yeah, essentially Pennsylvania uh, and Nevada would be a trade there in terms of seats from Democrats to Republicans. As we know, Harry, polls undercounted some of the Republican support in 2020 and in 2016, not so much 2018, but what does the map look like and could that happen again? Yeah, so let's take a look, right? Essentially, let's just adjust the polling averages by the errors that we saw both in 2020 and 2016. Look at 2020 right here. If we adjust the polling averages to have a 2020-like polling error, 
Democrats are still ahead in the four seats that they need to gain control. Yes, the race is a bit tighter, especially in Pennsylvania, where John Fetterman would be up just three points with a 2020-like polling error, but they would, in fact, have the votes. Look at 2016, if we had a 2016-like polling error. Again, it's tighter still. But again here, look, Democrats have the votes. They have the four, They are leading in four of the six races that they would need to get Senate control, even though in Pennsylvania it's tight. So it's a tight race at this point, John. But even if we have polling errors like in either 2020 or 2016, Democrats would in fact gain control, can keep control of the United States Senate. So we put the 2020 filter on, the 2016 filter on. What about the 2018 filter when Democrats won the House? Yeah, if you get put on the 2018 filter, what do we find? In fact, Democrats, instead of getting four of those six seats, they would win five of those six seats. Pennsylvania, again, the 50th seat. But look here, in Nevada, Cortez Mastow would, in fact, be ahead by two points if we had a 2018-like polling error. So to sum this all up, if we have a 2016-like polling error, 2018-like polling error, or 2020-like polling error, Democrats would, in fact, still maintain control of the United States Senate. Uh, to sum it up, as John King likes to say, We'll have to count the votes. Uh, Harry Enn, thank you very much for that. I want to bring in the nation's Ellie Mistal, along with CNN political commentator S.E. Cup. And let me start with Manu's discussion with Mitch McConnell, S.E., because Mitch McConnell wouldn't answer when Manu asked him about the racist attack that President Trump made on his wife, Elaine Chao. You'll remember, you know, Ted Cruz yeah. pushed back on Donald Trump when Donald Trump went after his wife. So what's Mitch McConnell doing here? Um, I think avoiding, as Manu said, the distraction, the confrontation, it goes without saying it should not take any courage to stand up for your wife and to stand up against racism. That should be um, rote and easy and something we wish more people would do. But this is today's Republican Party. Politics proceeds um, and transcends even human decency and kind of personal, you know, personal attacks on your family, uh, politics seems to be more important. Yeah, look, I don't want to do the toxic male thing and be like, if somebody said that about my wife, I'd punch him in the mouth. But you know what I would want to do? I wouldn't lash my political career to the person who made fun and made a racist attack on my wife and then did everything I could to ensure that that person could have an opportunity to be president again. I wouldn't do any of that. And then I punch him in the face, right? Like, like, the, like this is not a difficult thing, as SE is saying. And yet what we see consistently from the Republican Party right now is debasement. You mentioned Ted Cruz, right? We've seen uh, uh, Donald Trump go after these people's fathers and families throughout the Republican Party. And we see them continually debasing themselves in the service of Donald Trump. And that is, that is who they are at this point. And I think that that's a, that's a more kind of existential crisis for their party than any one midterm election. You know, it's interesting you bring this up because you know who else sees it like you do is Tim Ryan, who's running for Senate in Ohio. And in last night's debate in Ohio, he went after... J.D. Vance, who is his Republican opponent, for doing the same types of things that you are describing right here. Let's listen to that. I think the problem is when you have guys like J.D. Vance who can't stand up to anybody. Like just a few weeks ago in, in Youngstown, on the stage, uh, Donald Trump said to J.D. Vance, all you do is kiss my ass to get my support. He said that. That's bad. Ohio needs an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. So, Ellie, I, mean, I get I get that Democrats might not like it when J.D. Vance, you know, sucks up uh, if that's what he's doing to Donald Trump there. But but Ohio is a Trump plus eight state. So why would it necessarily be a winning message for Tim Ryan? There? Well, this is part of, this is the part of the cult problem, right? Like you've got voters who do not believe that Donald Trump, their dear leader, can do anything wrong. And so then 
attaching himself to Donald Trump is the right political move for J.D. Vance. But the issue is, like, you put like this, any Bush, right, George Bush, Jeb Bush, a painting of a burning Bush, any Bush could hold on to Ohio for the Republicans at this point, right? So the fact that J.D. Vance has decided the only way that he wants to hold on to Ohio is by crawling up alongside the cult leader Donald Trump. Again, that's the troubling existential crisis. He doesn't need to do that to hold on to Ohio. He wants to do that to hold on to Ohio. J.D. Vance is just one among many uh, counted in the great emasculation of the Republican Party by Donald Trump, where you won't even stand up for your wife, um, in, you know, unless you, you would um, offend Donald Trump and, and, more importantly, his voters. You don't want to offend or lose his voters. And let's be clear about who the Republican Party, J.D. Vance included, is bending over backwards to appease. White nationalists, QAnon crowd, the conspiracy theorists. I mean, this is not the crowd that you should be aiming at. This crowd should be jettisoned. And instead, they're jettisoning the good conservatives, the Adam Kinzingers, the Liz Cheneys, the Mitt Romneys. They are the problem with the party. And, um, you know, it's obvious from Mitch McConnell's non-answer answer, he doesn't want to change that dynamic, not one bit. You know, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Daily News, which touches on a, on a facet of this, mm-hmm. right, which is Republican embrace mm-hmm. of Herschel Walker, in some cases Tommy Tuberville, or at least not standing up to Tommy Tuberville when he uh-huh. says racist things, Kanye West not yeah. calling out Kanye West for anti-Semitic comments here. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the tension? Um, Just because people like Kanye West occasionally say things that seem adjacent to the right-wing political agenda, they are completely willing to exploit him and, yes, even defend rank anti-Semitism. Because Tommy Tuberville is standing at a Trump rally and saying the right things and naming the right enemies, Republicans are fine with his naked racism. That Herschel Walker is an obvious hypocrite obvious. Whatever you think about abortion, and I I don't like abortion, he is an obvious hypocrite, and that doesn't matter. It's because Republicans have decided politics is more important than decency, honesty, conviction, integrity. I mean, any of these things, none of it matters, even if you're anti-Semitic, racist, or a hypocrite. Is this where I get to say I told you also? Because, like, this has been their party for a long time. And I think at some point, Republicans need to look to themselves. Look at the kinds of policies they are promoting. Look at the kinds of, look at the way they want the Mm -hmm. country to be and ask, why do our policies attract the worst people possible? Like, they have to ask that question at some point, I think, to move forward from what's happened to their party. Well, there used to be, and I, you know, I'm a Republican. I've been around the conservative movement a really long time. And there used to at least be some shame and embarrassment at this Mm -hmm. kind of overt, Racism, sexism, anti-Semitism. There's no shame anymore. Elliot, very quickly, Bernie Sanders says he is alarmed by the idea that Democrats are being told, he says, to focus exclusively on abortion as their final argument here. Yeah, that's classic Bernie. You know, like, look, he's he's probably not wrong. That, that there are some Democrats that probably need to do a better job making the argument about the economy, that abortion isn't going to move everybody forward. But like the, the, uh, Bernie Sanders and, and lives in a world where he honestly believes in his heart that white non-college educated voters will at some point vote their economic interests over their cult and over their tribe. I want him to be right, and so we'll leave it at that. Ms. Dell, as great to see both of you. Thank you so much for coming in in person. Next, the startling warnings about a recession, not only predicting if there will be a major economic downturn, but now 
Economists are pinning down exactly when. In our money lead, a perfect storm of global economic crisis brewing and, quote, the worst is yet to come. That today from the International Monetary Fund, which warns many people will feel a recession by next year. I want to bring in CNN's Rahel Solomon and Mark Stewart. Rahel, it seems each day we, we get this new recession warning. Is it just inevitable at this point? It does feel like another day, another recession warning. This particular warning was pretty dark. And yet the IMF said in this report that a global recession is not inevitable. That said, it does expect about a third of the globe next year to be in some sort of recession. And as you pointed out, many people around the world feeling like they are in a recession next year. If there is any silver lining in this report, and it was hard to find, it's that the IMF expects global recession, a global inflation rather, to peak this year before falling in the years to come. But look, in a report that warns the worst is yet to come and stormy waters are ahead, a silver lining is hard to find. So what will that feel like? Mark, if there is a recession, because people don't like it when there isn't a recession, maybe now, and there is inflation. So what would be different or worse if there is a recession? Really, two words come to mind, tough and tangible. You mentioned inflation. That is something that has been persistent. It will likely remain and could perhaps get even worse. And of course, then there's the threat of job losses. But above all of that, businesses could face new pressures that could put them out of business, so to speak. That could trickle down to local governments where people would be in need of help. That's another financial strain. And then there is the stock market. And we know from having many discussions, the stock market is not the economy, but it's where many of us put our 401ks. As we have seen in recent weeks, there have been a lot of stock market declines. During a down market, things can get very turbulent. So for some Americans, that could, and I'll put in bold print, could mean delayed retirement. And again, very quickly, Rahel, just remind us why the Fed, to an extent, thinks a recession is worth the risk to battle inflation. Well, because the risk in not taming inflation now is that inflation remains with us for much longer, and then it becomes a harder problem to solve. But very quickly, one thing that I want to point out from this report is that although the IMF is expecting a recession for a third of the world next year, it does not expect that for the U.S., the European Union, and China, which are the three largest economies. So that's an important asterisk. It's a silver lining right there. Rahel Solomon, Mark Stewart, great to see you in person. Turning to our health lead, for the first time, an influential group of medical experts now recommends all children age 8 and older be screened for anxiety. On top of that, the same group renewed its 2016 recommendation for children 12 and older to be screened for depression. This is an effort to help primary care doctors support children's mental as well as physical health and provide earlier detection and treatment before problems become obvious. The recommendations are in the latest journal of the American Medical Association. Next, the Oath Keepers trial and a comment from the leader of the far-right group just weeks before January 6th, how prosecutors are now trying to use his own words against him. Back with our politics lead, five leaders of the far-right militia group The Oath Keepers are in a D.C. federal courtroom today on trial for a crime only prosecuted a handful of times in U.S. history, conspiracy to commit sedition for their role in the January 6th insurrection. CNN's Sarah Sider was in court. Sarah, in part of the evidence presentation today, we heard from the leader of the Oath Keepers himself. What did he say? Yeah, prosecutors have been saying, look, we don't have to just tell you this. You will hear it in their own words. And they're talking about the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, and four others, one of whom is just an associate of the Oath Keepers. 
And basically what they did was play a video from November 14th of 2020 during that million MAGA march that was here as people marched to the Capitol to decry the 2020 election. And we hear from Rose himself claiming that the election was stolen. And then we hear this. I think, I think about half this country will recognize Biden as legitimate. They won't accept this, this election. What that means is that everything that comes out of his mouth will be considered just not of any force or effect. Anything he signs, you know, supposedly he signs the law, we won't recognize as being legitimate. And we'll be very much like the founding fathers. We'll just wind up nullifying and resisting it. What is resisting it? Well, when they come to try to enforce it, we'll defend ourselves against the enforcement. The jury saw that and a slew of messages between uh, members of this group and others uh, who were planning for that November rally and then for the rallies afterwards. Uh, we also heard right after that November rally, a couple of days uh, after that November rally, the self-described militia member uh, basically talked about what would happen next time. We heard Thomas Caldwell saying next time and there will be a next time, there will be real violence for all of us. Prosecutors also shared jurors an open letter from Stuart Rhodes to then-President Donald Trump after he had lost the election, and he asked the president to invoke the Insurrection Act. Here is what he said at the end of that open letter, a, a, a demand from him saying, know this, millions of Americans, military and law enforcement veterans, and many millions more loyal, patriotic American gun owners stand ready to answer your call to arms and to obey your orders to get this done. Now, the defense went through this and said, yes, there was an open letter. Yes, that did happen. Uh, but it is asking the president to invoke this Insurrection Act. Thereby, this group said that they would come in as peacekeepers, not as attackers. They also tried to attack some of the evidence, saying not in anywhere in that evidence was the, the, the January 6th date named, uh, nor the plot written out uh, when it comes to January 6th. But a lot of evidence to go through, John. Yeah, very quickly, Sarah, how long could this trial go? That is a really good question. Now, initially they have said four weeks, then it was six weeks. Uh, and now we're thinking it's going to be a little bit longer, just judging from the pace of things right now, but at least six weeks. All right. Great to have you there. Sarah Seiner, thank you very much. Sad news today in our pop lead. Legendary actress Angela Lansbury has died at the age of 96. Born in London, Lansbury was an iconic stage and television actress, winning five Tony Awards and 12 Emmys over her long career. She may be best known for her starring role in the popular CBS show Murder, She Wrote for 12 seasons. Younger viewers may remember her as the voice of Mrs. Potts from Disney's Beauty and the Beast. I found her to be the most terrifying villain ever in The Manchurian Candidate. A family statement says she died just five days shy of her 97th birthday. What a talent. May she rest in peace. Up next, what NASA says about its abilities to knock an asteroid off track from possibly slamming into Earth. Because we need to know this, right? In our out-of-this-world lead, NASA says the spacecraft it deliberately crashed into an asteroid succeeded in knocking the space rock off its natural orbit. The $325 million DART spacecraft was destroyed when it rammed an asteroid last month. The goal of this real-life deep impact was to find out whether slamming into a killer rock could save Earth from Armageddon. This is the first time humanity has ever altered the motion of a celestial body, which is great news for all of us, honestly, but especially for oil drillers 
who now won't be asked to travel to space and dig an 800-foot hole to save the planet. So tune in tonight for two big interviews. Jake Tapper's full, exclusive conversation with President Joe Biden. Also on the show tonight, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Hear what he said about his new film and any chances of possible political ambitions. That's on Jake's debut time slot, 9 o'clock Eastern, ahead of the November midterms. I'm John Berman. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.